Uh, turn to Galatians to this morning, you guys. We're going to take a detour that is also, but that is related to where we've been, <clears throat> where we were last week in the book of 2 Samuel. Um, we're going through the book of Samuel. Um, it was originally one, it is in the Hebrew Bible, one scroll. There is no first and second Samuel. It's just one book called Samuel. Um, um, we're going through that on Sunday mornings, but it Last week in our story of Mephibosheth and, God, and David showing kindness to him warrants that we explore some of the theological ideas that we ran into, um, that we explore them a little bit more. And I think, you know, I'm so excited to do this. My prayer for us today is that we become freshly aware and convinced of God's personal, particular, and passionate love. For, for us, for all of us. This is a really big passion of mine because it's, I think, it's the love of God that actually has the power to heal us and to make us whole and to keep making us whole. I think the love of God is something that we can never get enough of, <laughs> that we're supposed to hang out in and marinate. And I also think that the greatest lie in danger to our souls that may come in many forms, but I really do think behind it all is a lie or a whisper that says, God can no longer love you, or you're not lovable. Something's wrong with you, okay? And so I think this is, personally, I, I would bet the farm that we're all dealing with this at some kind of a level in our lives, the love of God. We might know it intellectually, we might be able to, you know, if I was to pass out tests that are multiple choice, true or false, God loves me. I bet everybody would mark true. But I think in the particulars of our life, I think this is, I think this is the thing that the enemy comes against, that evil. We believe in forces of evil. The Bible is very clear about that. And we believe that there's a spiritual, psychological war going on for our hearts. And I think the battlefront is this issue of the love of God. So I, I, want, so I want us to pull up to the table and drink deep. Before I get into it, let's pray. God, I ask that you would dump your love on us this morning. I ask that you would give me, that you would refresh my own heart with a dump of your love on my soul and on my heart. I need it. And you know, um, God, when I start to go cold, when I start to go astray, it usually is because I've forgotten or started to drift from my awareness of your love. Jesus, you told us in John 15 to abide in my love. That means stay in my love. That's what it's all about, understanding staying. And I just confess that I have not stayed. I have strayed. And to that degree, things start to go haywire. Lord, may this be a return, a homecoming this morning for all of us. Start with me. Light us up again with the knowledge of your great love that, we might, that it might spill over through us into others. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, over the years in ministry, I've interacted with several genuine Christians who are not certain of God's love for them. It's so sad to me. And I've struggled with this in my own life. But I'll, throughout my pastoral work, I've met so many Christians that are just not sure of it. They aren't certain. In fact, truth, truth be told, they're suspicious of God. There's a sense of suspicion. They aren't certain that God loves them because they're usually, typically, more aware of their sin in that moment than they are of God's love in that moment. Okay? And their awareness of sin causes them to wonder, does God really love me? It's the first whisper in the garden. Does God really love me? These people tend to think that God, um, at best, that God is merely tolerating them. He's putting up with them. 
that he loves me in a general way because he loves everybody and he is love. So of course, yes, he loves me, but I think he's probably pretty frustrated with me or not as particularly interested in me. And chances are many of us struggle with this. We think this is the same way. So I pray that this Sunday forms a defining moment for us all. I pray that we could dive into this and we could sense it and feel it and rejoice in it. I hope that there's a dramatic alteration in our view of God this morning, a reinforcement of his love for us this morning. And I pray that you will be convinced, that you'll walk out of here today more convinced of God's love for you than when you came in. And for those um, that might be watching online or whatever that aren't believers, I pray that this would be, that well, number one, that you'd be convicted of the seriousness of your sin. And secondly, that you'd be convinced of God's love for you that's demonstrated by the death of Jesus on the cross for sinners like you and me. So without, with that in mind, let's get it. This is Galatians chapter four. This is, a, this is holy ground for me. I mean, all the Bible obviously is holy, but for me, I feel like I need to take my shoes off for this one. This is, this is the glory of the gospel. Let me read it to you, and I wanna read it slow, and we're gonna pick it apart. He says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Likewise, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of this world. Remember that phrase. We're going to pick it apart a little bit later. Under the elements of this world, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. Because of that, you are no longer a slave, but you're a son or a daughter. And if a son or daughter, then you are an heir of God through Christ. This is God's word. This is God's word to mankind. This is the proclamation. This is the good news of God. And if you've been following Jesus for a while, it's still good news for you. Now, starting Galatians in chapter four, I have to apologize, it's a little weird. It's like, start, it's like walking into a group of your friends in the middle of a conversation. It's hard to understand. So let me back up a little bit and give you some context so you can unpack this with me. Um, the Galatian churches were made up of Gentile Christians, not Jewish Christians, who were in the process of deserting the gospel. That's just the quick way of putting it. They were in the process of leaving Christianity. Christianity was fizzling out, okay? They were in the process of deserting the gospel because they were being influenced by false teachers and uh, and false teaching in their town. After Paul and Barnabas had left, some false teachers had followed and come in behind them and started perverting the truth and started distorting it. And Paul in chapter three, verse one, speaks to them and he says, Who has bewitched you? In other words, who has fooled you? So so they're deceived. Someone's spoiled the truth that the Galatians once held. Someone's come in and spoiled it. It was as if a spell had been cast over them, and that spell was this subtle but very serious error of what we call legalism. Having received God through the proclamation of the gospel, The Galatians were in the process of abandoning the gospel of grace and adopting the Mosaic law as a means of their salvation. They were now seeking to achieve forgiveness and love. That's the subtle um, switch, subtle but dangerous. 
They were now seeking to achieve forgiveness from God. They were seeking to achieve justification before God. And they were seeking to achieve acceptance by God through their obedience to God. That was the emphasis of these false teachers that were coming through. So for these Christians, the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross was no longer enough. It was no longer sufficient for these Christians. They must now add their behavior and their works in order to atone for their sins. And this was a complete misunderstanding and misapplication of the law. It was a distortion of the law, and in effect, was a des- the effects were it was a desertion of the gospel. They were starting to depart. They were starting to leave it. The law was never meant necessarily to save, but rather to reveal and contain sin. <laughs> That's the idea behind a law, you know. Um, parents understand this. We get it. You know, parents, when we have, when par- especially teenage- parents of teenagers, we say things like, come back, come home at a reasonable time. Right? That's what we say. Come back at a reasonable time. And, they, and our kids, what's that? Yeah, make, or, yeah, make good choices. Yep, stay upright, stay vertical. All, you know, all of those advices that we give, right? Stay public, stay vertical. That's one thing that we say. And so teenagers come home at around one. And we say, hey, we said come back in a reasonable time. And they're like, well, you know. So what do we do? We get specific. We slap a law on there. Reasonable equals nine. Sorry for you teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're like, you guys are like, you don't have a teenager yet, do you, Mike? Ish. <laughs> Come back at 10, right? We, we put that on there because you need to get, we're trying to contain. There's, they're missing. But the, the goal of the Bible and the goal of wisdom is for you to be able, for, the, for a mature person to be able to answer and to make decisions through the 80% of life that the Bible has nothing to say about. Right? The Bible's not going to tell you what school to go to. The Bible's not going to tell you uh, who to marry. I, one guy, I was walking through by the, the Christian college I went to, and there was a guy trimming these trees. And I said, man, you do a good job try, trimming these trees. And he said, you know, what, you know what taught me to trim these trees? And I said, what? And he said, the Bible. And I went, I smiled and nodded and said, okay. The Bible did not teach that guy how to trim those trees, okay? Let me just say it right, right now. The Bible is not a, an instruction manual that you can look in and go, let's see, tree trimming? Okay, follow these steps, exact steps. No, the Bible gave him wisdom, maybe, and the Spirit gave him wisdom on how that worked, but it's not, the Bible is not basic instructions before leaving earth. If you want to find the quickest way to annoy me and get under my skin, you can say, isn't the Bible the basic instructions before leaving earth? And I will say, no, emphatically no, absolutely not. <laughs> okay, anyways. I didn't, like that song. I didn't like that song, no. In fact, yes, I still don't like that. It's not that I didn't like it. I hated it. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> the Bible gave, gives laws. And through Abraham, God gave the spirit of the law. Through Moses, God gave the specifics of the law. Why? Because Israel kept rebelling. They kept worshiping golden calves, and they kept going astray. And so if you follow the narrative, which is more what the Bible is, if you follow the story, it's much like, maybe like some of your parenting adventures. You give a statement... And as the story goes on and your kids begin to rebel and find the gray areas and wiggle out of things, your laws get a little bit more specific. But at some point, you're hoping as they grow older and you're guiding them that, you can, that they, create, they have a spirit of wisdom, that they begin to know what it's all about. That's the point of the law, 
is to guide us towards wisdom and to guide us back into God's, into God's heart. Not as a rule book of do's and don'ts on how you can um, technically, by the letter of the law, through some kind of legal contract, be, uh, be admitted into heaven. It's a subtle but a big difference. So in chapter 3, Paul provides the Galatians with a survey of the history of the law, informing them of the divine intent and purpose of the law in order to protect them from misunderstanding and misusing it. Chapter 3, verse 19, he says, what purpose then does the law serve? What's the point? And then he answers, but uh, in verse 23, he says, but before faith, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. So notice in chapter 4, he's talking about guardians. He's talking about someone watching over you as you're being raised. You can see how the metaphor is starting to, starting to connect. He says, before faith came, that, um, that is faith in the gospel, we were kept under guard by the law, a parental figure, so to speak kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. And then chapter 4 is the continuation of this conversation, the continuation of, and the answer to the question, why then the law? So let me read verse 1 again. It says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children... We were in bondage under the elements of this world. Be home at a certain time. Elements of this world. Verse 3 of Galatians 4 is quite possibly, in my opinion, maybe one of the most interesting phrases in the New Testament. The phrase elements of this world is a really, really uh, engaging, interesting phrase, especially in the Greek. Um, And look at our relation to it. Before we were in Jesus Christ... Before we were Christians, we were in bondage to the, to this, the elements of this world. In other words, these, the elements of this world have the power to bind us, to restrict our freedom, to bring us into captivity. But when we're in Jesus Christ, that bondage should be broken into more of a spirit of wisdom. Now, when you get into the original language and the grammar of this word, it has, the, it has the ideas of, quote, the rudimentary laws of the universe, you could say, or the ABCs of the universe. This is something universal. This is something that, what he's referring to is something that is kind of woven into the spiritual fabric of the universe, these elements of this world. And what he has in mind are fundamental principles like building blocks that sort of motivate and operate the whole spiritual spectrum of the universe. And Paul is saying that through sin, we've become in bondage to these things. This phrase was used primarily to describe things like the alphabet. It was the, basically, it's Paul's way of saying this is the ABCs of life. These are the one, two, three. This is the alpha, beta, gamma, delta. This is, this is, the, this is the, the basic building blocks. It was a phrase that meant the basic laws of life. What were these elementary, or what are these elementary principles of the universe that, that we are in bondage to before we came to Jesus Christ? I believe that what Paul is talking about here is the basic law of cause and effect. That's what I think. I think it's cause and effect. In other words, you get what you deserve before God. You will be held accountable. When you're good, then God treats you good. And when you're bad, then God treats you bad. You can call it karma, cause and effect. What goes around comes around. You can call it conditional, uh, a conditional covenant if you want to go into the old, the old covenant, the Mosaic law. The Mosaic covenant was conditional, straight up. If you follow these commands that I've given to my servant Moses, then you'll be blessed. If you don't, then you will not be blessed. Whatever you want to call it, it rules the hearts and minds and the natures of people because God has written it on our hearts, has he not? This, is, this, is, this cause and effect is something that you and I 
breathe in and breathe out. We think about it without really even thinking about it. Our society is rightly ran on it. It brings order. It's not bad, it's good. But with sin involved, it brings us into bondage. This principle is at the core of the Mosaic law that the Galatians were now trying to accept as salvation, and this is the danger. They were saying, if I do the law, then God owes me salvation. And if I break the law, then I deserve exile from God. That was the new mark that they were that was the new bearing that they were putting on their soul if I do good then God owes me salvation he has to give it to me it's in the contract but if I do bad then I am thrown out my my fellowship with God is separated why didn't Paul just say that you're in bondage to the law well because he's pointing out a very universal trait of the law and these were Gentiles. Probably, they probably didn't understand the, the intricacies of the Mosaic law that they were adopting, but they did understand this idea of, of cause and effect. It runs through every major world religion. It's a works-based system. It's behavioral. Be home at a certain time. If you don't, there'll be consequences. We'll take the car away. It's a cause and effect, see? Now Paul tells the Galatians that they used to be in bondage to this and he's imploring them, don't go back to that system. Don't go back to that. Isn't this the pull on us as Christians? It's so, well, with me, it is very difficult. It is very hard for me not to think in terms of I'm, I'm closer to God today because I did my devos and because I came to church and because I was selfless with my wife and I'm farther from God, I've got the leaves and I'm hiding because I did something bad. It just is the, it's just so easy to get sucked into that old system. It's a good system. It's the principles of the universe. I want, I want you to mark this. It's, it's not evil in and of itself, but the problem is my sin. I can't, I can't, I'll, it's, a, it's a game I'll never win. And so it becomes bondage. It becomes Slavery, it wraps me all up. And Paul is saying, don't go back to that. Don't go back to that. Now, in a broad sense, we don't do away with the idea of cause and effect. In normal, everyday life, they certainly have a place in your school and in your work. I have to, t- I have to tell students this. Don't go home and say, I don't need to do my homework because Mr. Manjay says that we're not under a cause and effect system anymore, so I shouldn't have an F, you know. But the purpose of cause and effect on a spiritual level is not to save from sin, but to reveal our need for a savior primarily. We were, we were all in bondage to this because of our sins. Cause and effect, or the law, says that we all deserve, all of us deserve death and hell. All of us. Every... The, the world is infected with this contagion that makes cause and effect, this parental kind of guardian, someone that puts us in bondage because we, we're, we're the consummate rebellious teenager that keeps, on, that keeps on crossing boundaries. And even when we do the right thing, we do it for the wrong motives. It, it, you know, someday... If Noble came to me and said, Dad, I will do everything you say. I will follow the letter of your law. I'll be back. I'll be home at 8.59. And my room will always be clean. And I'll feed all the animals. And I'll, and I'll you know, I'll, I'll give you your nightly foot rub. That's not one of my rules. I'm just kidding. I will do all this. But let's say he says to me, but he'll never have my heart. I hate you and I can't wait to leave. Would I say, well, at least you got the rules part down. Good, you know, good parenting there. Of course not. Of course not. Right? So even when we do the right things, it's to, well, now you have to give me my allowance. Or now you've got to give me freedom. or not. See, everything's, everything is infected with this attitude that skews everything and puts us in bondage. That's the problem. Because of what we've done, the law proclaims us and holds us in bondage as God's enemies 
We deserve death. Cause and effect is not a good thing for sinful people. Especially before a holy and righteous judge. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we were there last week, we looked at the very moving story of David and Mephibosheth. And David is in the full flower of his success at this point as king of Israel, and he asks the question from this place of blessing, is there anyone left from the house of Saul that I might show kindness to them? God's kindness has said to them for Jonathan's sake. Remember, the custom back then was for kings like David to say, is there anyone left from the last dynasty that I might kill them so they don't threaten my reign or my legacy? David is just the opposite. David wants to bless the house of Saul for the sake of someone else. And we talked about how important that is. God is blessing us for the sake of someone else who has found favor with God. The same is true here. He found the son of Jonathan, a man by the name of Mephibosheth, who was, remember, he was scared, he was hiding, he was crippled, and he was poor. Remember that? And David remedied all of those things, except for the fact that he was still crippled. But David did so much more for Mephibosheth. Look at the middle of verse, well, I'll read it to you since you're not there. The middle of verse 11, he says, As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's very own sons. And this is what we need to enjoy today. He didn't just forgive Mephibosheth and give back all that he had lost and give him his servants. He He didn't just invite him him to dine with him as a guest. He invited Mephibosheth to, to dine with him as one of his children. He adopted Mephibosheth. David adopts him. It would have been enough to just say, we're good, man. Don't, hey, don't be afraid anymore. I'm not gonna come get you. That would have been enough. It would have been enough to say, hey, I'm gonna give you all your stuff back. You're now rich. That would have been enough. All of that would have been enough. But more than, it, more than that, he says, come and dine with me, that would have been enough. That would have, that's astounding in and of itself. But not just dine with me, I'm gonna change your status. Why you dine with me is because you're now my kid. You're now in my family. And this is our story. This micro story in 2 Samuel represents the macro story, the ultimate story, and represents the heart of God for you and for me. This is what he wants. Mephibosheth was the enemy of the king, not because of his own wrongs, but because of his ancestor Saul's wrongs. And in the same way, we initially became the enemies of our king, not because we asked for it, but because Our ancestors, Adam and Eve, messed up. They revolted against the king. At the same time, Mephibosheth was David's enemy because of his own decisions, in a sense. He decided to run from David, and he had a false assumption of David, of the king, that David was out to get him instead of out to love him. Likewise, we're on the run because we have false assumptions of our king. Not only are we enemies because of Adam's choices, we're guilty because of our own. I'll tell you, you know, theologians call it, uh, when Adam ate the fruit, they call it the Adam bomb. If Mike was there, it just would now be called the Mike bomb. I'm sure I would have done the same. Just as Mephibosheth was in bondage to the customs of the law of his day, that the king would destroy uh, the surrounding, is that a foghorn? Never heard that before. Here. Sorry. Squirrel. (laughs) Woo. Sorry. Just as Mephibosheth was in bondage to the customs of the law of his day, Paul, writing to the Galatians, says that before before you and I were in Christ, we were in bondage to the elementary principles of the universe, and that is the old regime must die. We were targets. We were enemies of God. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen. 
That means every part of you is fallen. That's what it means. Even your good intentions are fallen. Because we have caused a breach from the source of life, we've caused, let me just use my language all the way through here, the effect is that we have died both as a race and individually. That's the message. The law holds us as enemies to God through our sins. Cause and effect says that by sinning, we've declared war on God. And the natural effect, mankind is now crippled. We're poor. We're living in fear, hiding, running from the creator. We have false assumptions of who he is. But back to Galatians. But God sent his son. But God sent forth his son, not just to forgive us, not just to give us back what we had lost in the fall, not just to redeem us, but to actually adopt us into the family of God. Listen to how J.I. Packer says it. No one says it better, I don't think. He says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. That's a Christian. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption, Dr. Packer says. The truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights that the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. The deepest insights. So according to Packer, the doctrine of adoption is the richest answer the scripture has given to us to the question, what is a Christian? And the truth of adoption gives us the deepest insights into the greatness of that love. love. Look at verse 4 again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is the turning point in all of redemptive history. God sent forth his son. That's the moment that it all changed. The world was going to hell. You and I were in bondage to sin and the cause and effect principle known as the law, but God sent forth his son. You can just hear the brakes. Everything stops and changes. It was dark. It was bleak. It was hopeless, but God intervened like a beam of light into the darkness. While in our condition... It was humanly impossible to free ourselves from this enslavement that we're in. Look what God did. Look what God did. While we were lost in our sin and perversion and enslaved, completely enslaved, God sent his son in that condition when there was no hope of us following his rules. And even when we did, we did it for the wrong diabolical evil reasons. From heaven to earth, from Galilee to Jerusalem, from the manger to a cross, God sent forth his son. This is real, you guys. This is the story. This is what's brought you here on a Sunday morning. This story. Because we believe it's the story. It's real. This is the story that gets you through the grind every day. This is the story that gets us up out of bed in the morning, that gets us moving. This is the story that gets us through the headlines of the paper. Russia's invaded Ukraine. There's a new pandemic. There's political corruption. This is happening here. All of this. But God sent forth his son. Okay, I can go. This is real. This is what gets us through. Behold, the love of God revealed through the initiative of God in sending forth his son for those who are enslaved. Listen to Spurgeon. Listen to this quote by Spurgeon. He says this. Observe concerning the first advent that the Lord was moving in it towards man. 
when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. We move not toward the Lord, but the Lord moves towards us. He, he goes on, I do not find that the world in repentance sought after its maker. No, but the offended God himself in infinite compassion broke the silence and came forth to bless his enemies. See how spontaneous is the grace of God. All good things begin with him, Spurgeon says. The initiative of God for sinners like you and me reveals the love of God for sinners like you and me. He initiated it. You're not here because you felt spiritual. God put that in you. God was crying out to you. God made something in you resonate with that message. God made something in you say, I want to hear more of that. There's something in me that needs that. God sent forth his son for those enslaved by their sin. Now in verse five, the purpose of this death and the effect of this death are described for us. Look at verse, well, let me back up and, and look at verse four, but we'll go into verse five. He says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, why? To redeem those who were under the law. Let's add to this. God sent forth his son to redeem. To redeem. Now we weren't appealing. We were slaves to sin. And enslaved by our sin. We were condemned by the law. We, were, we richly deserved the penalty of death. We declared God our enemies. We're enemies of God. A price must be paid for our redemption. And that price was paid when Jesus Christ died as a ransom for my sin and for your sin. Because of his substitutionary death on the cross, we've been redeemed. We've been bought back from the power of sin. We are now free from the power of sin. You know that. You, me, right now, no matter what you've done, whatever you did on the way here, or the things you've thought, the, have you ever had a, a gnarly thought and, you thought, and it even surprised you? <laughs> like, oh man, I didn't know that was in there. We are now free from the power of sin. We're free from the penalty of sin. And you know what? Someday... We'll be free from the presence of sin. Imagine the day that it's not even tempting to you. God sent forth his son to redeem. Now, just sending his son to redeem and free us from the power and penalty of sin would, have been, would be, right there, efficiently astounding. Right there, that would be, that'd be worth coming to church for. Right there. I mean, if the sermon ended right there, <laughs> if, if, you know, if we were like, let's pray and let's do communion, the content of this sermon, as even up to this point, would be amazing. It'd be astounding. If there was a period, or if I brought this to a conclusion, no one in this room should be disappointed to this point. Your sins are forgiven. You're free from the penalty of sin. You've been redeemed. But the sentence doesn't end there. <laughs> There's no period. He keeps going. Look what he says. He says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Here it is. So that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters of God. Period. The climax of the entire Bible is the revelation to the, to the believer that God is my daddy. That is the glory of Christianity. Christianity is about knowing a person, not about knowing a doctrine. It has a doctrine, but it's not about knowing a doctrine, not only about knowing a doctrine. That's the means to knowing a person. And knowing a person as daddy. Doctrine's important, but not as an end in and of itself. It's to get us to the heart of dad. 
Father has now become, in the New Testament, Father has now become the covenant name. And that's what makes the new, the new covenant better than the old. The old covenant is what um, scholars and, and theologians call forensic. It means it's a legal covenant. Man approached God as a holy judge. And it was conditional. It was cause and effect. In the new covenant, uh, theologians call it filial. It means it's a family. We're ushered in. In other words, God would say to us Christians, I'm not just the king and you're my subjects. I'm not just the shepherd and you're my sheep. I am father and you're my children. You're my children. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in him. That's John's gospel, chapter one. Notice what he doesn't say. But as many as received him at a camp or went forward at some altar call or said some magic prayer, to them he gave the right to go to heaven after they die. Doesn't say that. I'm sure it's true, but it doesn't say that. That's, not the, that's putting a period where there should be a comma. He says, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. The covenant that now binds God to his people is not a legal covenant, it's a family covenant. This is the glory of it. Christians are now his sons and daughters, and the stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty and danger of drawing near to a holy God, but it's on the boldness and confidence by which we can approach him at all. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his own flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near. House of God is family of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you hear the invitation in that? Because you're his son, because you're his daughter, the invitation, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In other words, come out from hiding. Throw the leaf away. Come out from the bush and come to God like a kid would run to his dad after falling and scraping their knee. That's the relationship we have with God. When you sin, when you stumble, you can go to him and he'll scoop you up and bind your wounds and send you on your way. Oh, it's what we need. God's purpose did not conclude with redemption or justification, as primary and fundamentally true as those two things are. That's very true, but it culminates in adoption. Like David and Mephibosheth, God made slaves into sons through the death of his own son. Let me read you another quote by J.I. Packer because it fires me up and you're going to love it. He says, you can sum up the entire New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to, listen to this, if you want to judge how well someone understands Christianity... If you want to judge how well someone understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that that person does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God, Dr. Packer says. I want to take a few moments to swim around in the deep end of the theological pool a little bit here. 
And as we're swimming around in this part of the pool, I want to encourage, we're going to encounter the deepest insight. First of all, in adoption, we encounter the deepest insight into the greatness of God's love. The New Testament gives us two measuring rods by which to measure the love of God. First is the cross. Um, 1 John says, Behold what manner of love the Father is, or excuse me, uh, 1 John 4, 8 through 10, and Romans 5, 8 says, God loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross. I mean, that's, a, that, that's incredible. I mean, any parent should, I mean, we're blown away by that. Our children are our most, the most precious people to give my son away from, for, for enemies. Think about that. And this is God. That means he knows that he's going to give his son for people, and there'll be some that receive him because of that, but most will say, I still don't care, and I still don't love you, and I still don't want you. I, if I knew, if someone said to me, Mike, would you give noble for someone who will be ungrateful and still hate you afterwards? I'm sorry. No way. I, I don't, it's not in me. I don't have it in me. God did that. It's amazing love. Amazing love. The second rod, though, the measuring stick, is Adoption. And I started to read it. This is 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. What is it, John? That we should be called the children of God. Of God. I got another Packer quote for you. Adoption is a family idea. Conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God as a father is greater. No, no arguing that. There is a great and greater in the Bible. So much of the time, we, we are content with just the great. A lot of sermons and Bible studies are great. But there's a greater. Paul's burden in Galatians chapter 4 is that you and I experience the greater. To be justified and forgiven for your sins is a great thing. God sending his son to die and redeem mankind is a great essential thing. In fact, you can't have adoption without those things. You can't have adoption without justification or forgiveness. There are a lot of people who talk about adopting without mentioning the cross, and we cannot do that. The cross is essential to this. I'm not saying that we should talk about justification any less. I'm simply saying we need to talk about adoption more. To be forgiven by a holy judge and having our eternal debts paid is a great thing, but to be loved by God as his own child is greater. So let me ask you, let me, get, let me put this in your face a little bit. Let me put it in your lap. Do the words, do Packer's words, closeness, affection, and generosity describe your perception of God and your experience with him? Do you perceive God as full of affection for you? And if God had a fridge, your picture would be on it. That he loves you. That he cares for you right now. That he's deeply involved and interested in every part of your life. That he's honored to be trusted with your mess and with your vulnerability. That he feels honored that you would say, I've sinned again, Daddy. I'm sorry. Is he that safe to you? 
Do you perceive God as full affection, full of generosity towards you? Do you? If not, perhaps you're more aware of your sin and the shame than his adopting love for you. That's usually where it is with me. If I lose sight, it's because I'm probably more aware of the ways I've failed than I am of this love. When I encounter someone who is suspicious of God's love for them, I want to draw them into the, this doctrine of adoption. I want to apply it right to the wound of their heart. When a person who has been justified by grace doubts the love of God, I think it makes this father sad. When those who have been justified by grace alone, through Christ alone, are not receiving and enjoying the affection of God as revealed through adoption, I think it makes him so sad. The greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay on the Father is not to believe that he loves you, is not to believe that he cares. I don't think it's scandalous sin that makes him sad necessarily. I think what, it's what's behind the scandalous sin typically, and that is you forgot that you were loved. Why is this the greatest sorrow? Why is the father saddened when we forget that he loved? Well, because he sent his son. Think of this. He sent his son. He gave his son for me and you. He loved us so much that he sent his son and he crushed his son. And so when you and I, after that, what else could he give? When you and I, after that, we still say, gosh, I don't know if he loves me. I think it kills, I think it crushes his heart. He would say, Mike, I gave my son for you. I gave my boy for you. How can you ask if I love you anymore? That outweighs everything else. That's exactly right, Kristen. There's a psychological battle going on spiritually. He doesn't love you. And I think that's what just, I think that's where the war is at. I think that's the front line. I think that's it. That's right. He distorts things. He laces lies with truth, doesn't he? That's so-and-so. Noble the other day said, Dad, in heaven, is there like a beach where we can set up our, our chair right by the lake of fire and we can watch the devil eternally die? I don't, I, I don't know, son. But you, can, but you can ask him when you get there. He wanted to know if there's a beach in heaven where we can sit next to the lake of fire and watch the devil eternally die. You know, sip our heavenly Mai Tais and just watch the devil. So that sounds like heaven to me, buddy. <laughs> can I get a tissue somewhere? My nose is leaking, and I don't want you guys to endure the, oh, thank you, yes, hashtag mom power, yes, thank you, thank you. God crushed his son with his full, furious, and righteous wrath against our sin so that he might redeem us and adopt us into his family. That is the message. That is the message. Listen to this. This is from God's heart to you. You ready for this? In fact, why don't you close your eyes and listen. God says this. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her her womb? We all know by this time the answer is yes, unfortunately. He says, even, he says, surely they may forget. God knows. Yet, I will never forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. 
may that never cease to melt our hearts. When Jesus prayed in the garden for God to provide another way, all he heard was silence back from his father. Think of that. There was no alternative. And then the father endures the son on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, where are you? And God, the father, didn't run to his boy. He stayed himself back. For you and for me. And yet, we fall for it. Does God still love me after that story? Heaven screams, yes. Yes. I can't even read right now. This is what the Father chose to endure so that he could redeem you. And not just redeem you, but adopt you into his family. He did it so he could pour out his affection upon you as one of his very own children. So when we, we refuse to believe that he loves us, it's the greatest burden, I think, of sorrow to him. I recommend that we stop doing that. Can we, what about this as a church? Can we make a pact that we're going to, we're going to stop doing that now. But what is today anyway? March 19th. What if we, on March 19th, we did, as a church, we're going to stop questioning the love of God for us. That's what we're going to repent of. And, and you know what? Here's what I'm making up. I think that by repenting of that, we're repenting of all, of all the other things. I think that is the cause of all the other behaviors that you might feel led to repent of the anger, the fights. Explore it. Think about it. Meditate on it. Are your fights with your spouse or your ongoing fights with your kids or your addictions and proclivities and all of those types of things, is there something deeper going on there? Could this be at the heart of it? I think, I, I think you know where I lean on that. Let's stop listening to ourselves and instead let's start talking truth to ourselves and to each other. He sent forth his son to redeem and to, to adopt you. Let's, this is what community is for. We stir up each other with these words. We don't let each other just be satisfied with something great, but the greatest. And it's salted on our lips for each other. That we become safe people to come to. Say, man, I need a reminder of God's love today. And he in verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but you're a son, a daughter. And if a son, a daughter, then an heir of God through Christ. Notice really quickly the change in grammar from the plural in verse 6 to the singular in verse 7. He switches his tenses. He's bringing the doctrine of adoption to the... He, it's like Paul is taking the, do, the doctrine of adoption and he's, he's bringing it to you. He's placing it in your lap. He switches from a universal language to a very personal individual language. He transitions. In other words, in verse 7, everyone else in the room disappears and God, picture it in your mind in verse 7. Everyone else in the room disappears and all of a sudden God makes eye contact with you. It's very, very personal, as if God was speaking to the world at one point, but then all of a sudden, he catches your, your eye. You're in the crowd, and God sees you, and he directs his gaze towards you. He looks at you and says, therefore, therefore, Michael, therefore, Tara, therefore, Paul, therefore, Irma, therefore, Vero, Therefore, Selah. Therefore, Andrew. Therefore, Hal. Therefore, you are no longer slaves. You're children of God. You're a son. You're a daughter. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are my daughter, Renee. 
You're my son, Dave. You're my beloved daughter, Kristen. You need that, don't you? Does your heart suck that up? Yeah. Today, God wants to make eye contact with every person here and to say, therefore, you and you and you and you are my son and you're my daughter. And I love you and I'll never, ever stop. You're no longer a slave to sin. You are free. And it is my love. It is that love that actually will do it, will set you free. That's it. There is a wound in each of us that only the love of God can heal and continue to heal. Would you dare to believe it today? Would you dare to enjoy it today? Would you dare to give yourself permission? And would you hold it tight? The words of Jesus that I began with, this is in John 15 where he says, therefore, abide in my love. Stay in my love. Don't go. Don't leave. Stay. Stay in my love. If it means listening to sermons or podcasts that remind you of the love of God, if it means listening to worship songs that just keep you in it, if it means having a time with your kids and your family that, that explores the love of God, if it means holding your kids tight, if it mean, whatever it means as a family, as a church, how do we keep ourselves in the awareness of God's love, in the confidence of God's love? To that degree, we will grow from glory to glory to glory to glory. Amen? Amen. Amen.